1: Hello and welcome again to A Million Other Choices. I am still, and as always, your host, Kim. The story I have for you today is from Scarborough, Ontario, and it's going to take us on a bit of a journey through the justice system but ultimately land in that frustrating grey area for us podcasters. There's a solution to the mystery, the police and the investigators know it, but they can't tell us the solution and they can't get justice because there isn't enough hard evidence to arrest the person who is the solution. But a lot of stuff happens before we land in that grey area, so let's talk about that. This is the murder of Elizabeth Bain. Elizabeth, or Liz Bain as she was more frequently known, was a vibrant and active 22-year-old University of Toronto Scarborough student living with her parents, Julita and Ricardo. She also had a brother named Paul and a sister, Kathy, but I don't know if they were older or younger and if they also lived at home with their parents in 1990 when Elizabeth's story begins. Elizabeth was a gorgeous young woman with dark brown hair and soulful brown eyes, but more importantly, she was smart and vivacious, outgoing, and always busy being active in the community and in sports. In June 1990, she was working at a group home and attending university studying psychology. She was a very good student, and three years before, in her freshman year, she had met her boyfriend, Robert, Robert Baltovich who was interviewed by Phil Martino and Madison Fitzpatrick in 2021 for City News and said that he was in one of her psych classes with her and they had started out just as friends at first because Elizabeth was actually dating someone else at the time. But soon after they met, Liz and this other guy split, giving the very smitten Robert a chance with Liz. According to Innocence Canada, which could be a bit of a spoiler alert here, Robert and Elizabeth were deeply in love and talked about getting married one day. Robert also lived at home with his mom, so they would often find time together meeting on campus at a place called The Valley, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is like a park pathway winding beside the main campus and is much like a wooded park, but with really nice paved pathways. This is also, according to Robert, where they would sometimes find a hidden spot for sex. On the evening of June 18, 1990, Robert stopped by her house to give her flowers, a watch that he'd bought for her, and a poem that he'd written. Robert had graduated from university just the week or so before, and he was wanting to celebrate by treating the woman that he loved like the queen that he felt that she was. The following day, around 4 p.m., Liz told her mom that she was heading to the university to check the tennis schedules. This wasn't anything unusual, as she was a sporty girl, so her mom didn't really think anything of it. Liz had told Robert that she had plans to meet up with her friend Arlene on that day at some point, so her and him only spoke on the phone that day. that was earlier in the day not in the afternoon according to Robert he was on his way to the university for a class when he saw her car parked on old Kingston Road Liz drove a 1986 silver Toyota it was in a spot that she didn't normally park because it would have been a bit of a hike for her to walk to her evening class and this was about 15 minutes before that class was supposed to start but it was near the tennis courts and he did think it was odd. So he actually headed to the university and waited outside the classroom for her to come out, but she didn't. So he went back to where he had spotted the car and now it was gone. Now he didn't state in his interview with city news if he looked in the windows of the car, but it's kind of irrelevant because it was dark out and by that time, and he wouldn't have been able to see much except that she wasn't in the vehicle. So interesting fact here, Robert says that he went by Liz's place and spoke to her mum, asking if she knew where Liz was because she hadn't shown up for her class and he, he wasn't overly concerned because he still thought that maybe her and her friend Arlene had just skipped class for some reason. She told him that she hadn't come home yet and he told her that he saw her car but now it was gone and he hadn't heard from her. According to Robert, Julita didn't get too concerned at the time until the next morning, when she called him around 6 a.m. to ask if she was with him. And he said, no, I told you last night she wasn't with me. She hadn't come home that night before at all. So now they were both super worried, and together they called the police and reported her missing. What is very interesting is that Robert says he later learned that Julita told the police that that conversation the night before had never happened. Now, according to Robert, this wasn't a I forgot to mention it, but an it never happened statement about his visit the night before. So either Robert isn't telling the truth about that or Julita wasn't. Now, I can't see Julita lying about something like that. I mean, what motive would she have? I can see Robert lying about it because it is kind of an alibi. Anyways, after talking to Julita the night before, Robert says that he went home to where his mum, brother and sister-in-law all saw him. Because it was out of character for Liz to go missing like that, and this was all before cell phones, but she did still have a habit of making sure that her family knew where, knew where she was and knew what her plans were, the police take the report seriously and start a search, which is great for Liz's family, probably a real thorn in the side of a lot of Indigenous families with missing women in their families or families where the last reported whereabouts involved alcohol or drugs, but those are other stories. Both Liz and her car are missing, so the family, including Robert, go out, start going around putting up posters with pictures of her, looking for her and the vehicle, particularly near the university. A couple of days later, Liz's silver Toyota is found parked outside of an auto body shop, only a few minutes from her house. Liz isn't anywhere around the vehicle or in it, but there is an alarming large blood stain on the floor and on the back seat area. Blood tests will later confirm that it is Liz's blood and that there was enough of it present to conclude that this was a homicide and that Liz is no longer alive. There were some other tests done on this blood, but we're going to get to that a little bit later, actually many years later. Police continue their search, uh, which is now for Liz's body, uh, in all the ravines and wooded areas that they can think of using cadaver dogs. On June 24th, Robert returned to Liz's mom's house after putting up some posters and Julieta told him that the police wanted to ask him some questions. So he headed down to the police station to talk to them. And within about an hour of talking to the police, Robert starts to realize that they are looking at him for Liz's murder, which didn't necessarily surprise him. He said that they would actually be fools not to look at him. But he's starting to realize that this is serious, that they are really looking at him especially since they keep telling him that there are inconsistencies in his story that don't line up with the witnesses that they have. And Robert is telling them, look, I don't know why they're saying that. I know where I was and when. The investigator's theory was that he had killed her on the Tuesday night, the 19th, and hid her body in a wooded area of Colonel Danforth Park, and then went back to her body three days later to pick up her remains while driving her car and disposed of it in a nearby lake. The theory started over a diary entry which was made five days before her disappearance that was found in Liz's journal by her sister Kathy. In this entry, it was a big vent that she hated Robert and wanted him gone. She wanted everyone that bothered her gone and she alluded that she even wanted to die herself. Now this is a huge and big red flag and I can see why this started to turn the viewpoint of the family from the loving boyfriend to a possible murderer. But Robert claims she's a psych student and she knows the power of a good vent. And it was five days before and Julia had seen when he came by the night before with the flowers and the gifts that everything between them was great. So they think Robert is a jilted lover angry over a looming breakup, kills her and tries to cover it up. Now, bolstering this theory is an eyewitness named Marianne that claimed, well, she claimed originally that she saw Liz sitting at a picnic table that afternoon with a white middle-aged man around 5.40 p.m. But after hypnosis, that changed to be a man matching Robert's description, and even then it was kind of a fuzzy recollection. But then she read the Toronto Sun saw a picture of Robert as the suspect, and now she was sure it was Robert that she saw. She was even more sure after she talked to Liz's family and learned that they were also sure that it was him. A second witness named David claims that, again, his recollection was heightened by hypnosis and evolved over time, that he saw Robert driving Liz's car three days after she disappeared. Initially, he said he, quote, wasn't really paying attention, and didn't have a good view of the driver, but his eyesight became much clearer as time went on. A third witness, and probably the only one nearing the truth, said that she saw Liz sitting in the passenger side of her car, parked directly across the street from where it was later found, and in the driver's seat was an unknown blonde male. On July 11th, which was Liz's birthday, Liz's family held a press conference, begging for information that would bring Liz home but unfortunately their pleas went unanswered. Robert was put under police surveillance. They searched his house and took with them letters and gifts that he had received from Liz, and on November 19, 1990, he was arrested and charged with Liz's murder, originally for first degree, which was later downgraded to second degree. To this day, her body has never been found. As they didn't have a body, the Crown was relying on the eyewitnesses and circumstantial evidence to support their theory when the case went to trial under Justice John Odiscoll in February of 1992. I will be right back after these messages.
0: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
1: By this time, Liz's family members had become convinced that Robert had killed Liz, so they didn't offer any testimony to help Robert other than Julita testifying that they appeared deeply in love. Robert was painted as the jealous and obsessive controlling boyfriend. The defense argued an interesting fact. In 1990, and still in 1992, in the Scarborough area, there was a serial rapist at work, and this person, later, as we all know, identified as Paul Bernardo, might have been the real killer. But the jury convicted Robert anyways because the Scarborough Rapist, after all, was just a rapist and not a murderer. Paul Bernardo and his either evil or victim, depending on what side you fall on, wife, Carla Homolka, wasn't arrested as the Scarborough Rapist until February 17th of 1993. In May 1992, after being convicted, Robert found a new lawyer and started the process of filing an appeal. They were arguing about the use of hypnotized witnesses and the instructions that the judge gave to the jury, which were prejudicial. In the meantime, while waiting for his appeal to be completed and heard, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka were arrested and charged with the Scarborough rapes and the murders of Kristen French, Leslie McAfee, and Carla's own baby sister, Tammy Homolka. If for some reason you don't know who these two asshats are, just Google the Ken and Barbie murders in Canada and you'll get more information than you ever wanted. When Robert's new lawyer heard about this arrest, he hired a private investigator to look into if, in fact, Paul Bernardo could have been the guy. And we're going to come back to this a little bit later. The appeal wasn't actually filed until May of 1996, four years later, and did reference the Scarborough rapist, but there were bigger issues that his lawyer had with the original trial. The case was supposed to be heard the following year, but was put off and no timeline was given, so Robert remained in prison. In March 2000, the Innocence Project got involved. They were horrified to learn about the hypnosis and eyewitnesses. And finally that year, an appeal for Robert's conviction being overturned was heard. Innocence Canada to this day feels that Paul Bernardo is the real killer, stating on their website, quote, all of his attacks during this period were near the University of Toronto Scarborough campus and Elizabeth's home. Moreover, P- Bernardo's extreme violence during these attacks suggested that he might soon escalate and kill future victims. This prediction was, of course, completely correct. Bernardo would soon go on to kill his wife's sister, Tammy himoka and high school students, Leslie McAfee, and Kristen French. Given Bernardo's history as the Scarborough rapist and his escalating pattern of horrifically violent crimes against women, one plausible explanation for Elizabeth's disappearance is that she, too, was one of Bernardo's victims. In fact, Innocence Canada lawyer James Lockyer, who represented Robert during this arduous appeal process, believes that the evidence shows that Bernardo probably did it. James Lockyer managed to get Robert granted bail, and he was released pending the outcome of this appeal. Of uh, Some of the points brought up were that the judge had instructed the jury members in a way that placed too much emphasis on the Crown's case while ignoring and actually belittling some parts of Robert's case rather than taking a more balanced view. He left out some important cautionary statements about the reliability or lack thereof of the prosecution's eyewitness testimony. And the Court of Appeal agreed uh, with his feeling that his first trial had been unfair and granted a new trial, but refused to acquit him outright. Um, but they did call his conviction wholly circumstantial. So they only set aside the conviction in the meantime. So a new trial was set for June 15th of 2007. And of course, this date was going to face many delays for various whatnots and why-nots. On June 7th, something kind of interesting happens. Toronto police make what is described as a secret trip to the Kingston Penitentiary to talk to Paul Bernardo and ask him,
2: Did you kill Elizabeth Bain on June the 19th, 1990? Well, it's a loaded question. I mean, are we going to go back and, 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 and go through the time sequence of what happened in my life? I mean, I, I could just give a yes or no answer, but you know, there's a lot of issues about that. Right. You know, the Carlos and my role, who did what, where, when, this is why I said did you guys have you know, go down there to get a polygraph to get to see if she was telling the truth. Like, why didn't Bevan do it in the first place? I mean, and now you're asking me, after you, after you said Peel Regional said I'm lying about this, and then you're saying I'm lying about my profile, you're saying I'm lying if I'm better or not. Now you're saying, hey, did you kill this person? I mean, well, you're saying I'm lying here, here, and here. I could say, no, I didn't. Uh, but... Peel you know, Region is lying about you, or someone else is lying about you. I have no control over that or No, it goes right to credibility. Anyways, I know I'm giving you guys a hard time being argumentative about certain things, but I mean, really, I'm a human being and when you guys do all these things, I've got to, anyways, I'll try and truncate it a little bit more, but. Anyways, the answer to that is no, but the 800-pound gorilla in the room is, that's a life 25 sentence, you know? It really comes down to credibility, and and not only credibility, but then again, timeline, I mean, between what Carlos and my roles were, respectively, and this and that. The answer is no to that question. Did you have anything to do with her disappearance? No. D- did you know Elizabeth B? I know. Had you ever met her? I'm gonna answer that with, uh, I don't remember, because if I did or I didn't, I don't remember. But I know an ex-girlfriend, I'm trying to say it but I guess I don't remember. Um, you obviously are aware of her disappearance do you recall when you became aware of this? <laughs> Best I can really recollect is this. this. Didn't follow me as much. Um, the date, obviously, June the nineteenth, nineteen ninety, was the. But 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 incident. you know, other other than that, I don't remember. You know, maybe I, I heard about it before, but I can't recall. But I remember.
1: Not getting much from that rambling answer, Robert's second trial got underway finally on April twenty-second, two 2008, and within minutes of starting, the jury found him not guilty. Liz's mom, Jelita, was distraught. She still maintains that Robert killed her daughter, and it wasn't Paul Bernardo or or anyone else, stating, quote, you know what kind of person he is. I know my daughter is dead. Just to think that he was linked to her murder is an awful thought. It's just somebody to blame it on, you know, looking for somebody to blame, end quote. Now, I couldn't find a lot of information on this, but a lawsuit was filed for malicious prosecution by Robert in 2013, in which some very interesting information came to light. One of the things that was found was that Detective Brian Raybould, who was one of the main investigators in the Elizabeth Bain case, had written notes about his meeting with the forensics team that took place three days after Liz disappeared. In the note, it says that forensics told him that the blood in Liz's car showed no evidence of decomposition. Hiding this evidence is a bit of a no-no because a lack of decomposition in the blood shows without a doubt that Liz was not killed and then later put into the car to be disposed of. She died on the Tuesday night, she disappeared and was likely killed in the vehicle not the theory that the police went with at all. Now take this next fact with a bit of a grain of salt because I only saw it reported on a Reddit thread uh, saying that it came from the Canadian press, but I couldn't find the original source document. There was supposedly a large palm print found on the window of Elizabeth's car that hasn't matched to either Robert or Paul Bernardo. In 2014, the police determined that they would not pursue Paul Bernardo for Elizabeth's murder, saying that he had not killed anyone in 1990. Quote, Paul Bernardo was considered, but not actively pursued as a suspect in the disappearance of Elizabeth Bain, because at that time, the Scarborough rapist had only committed violent uh, sexual assaults. Ew, brother. Anyways, fast forwarding to 2021, Robert is pleased that a cold case detective has been put on Liz's case and that it is still being pursued as unsolved. He figures now that they know for sure that she was killed on the night that she disappeared, they can properly investigate the matter. He feels he knows what happened, but can't really talk about it, and they haven't been able to put the evidence together to prove it. Without a body, it's very difficult. I have said before in cold cases that two things happen that solve cold cases— advancements in science, and changes in relationships. A falling out with a boyfriend can go a very long way to gathering evidence. Robert and the cold case detectives now working the case all feel that this case is solvable. They just need someone to come forward. As far as I'm aware, Liz's parents still feel that Robert was responsible and have not given any interviews since about 2007. They want complete privacy. They probably won't be too happy about this podcast, but I'm just giving the facts as they were presented, so my apologies to them if, that co- if my coverage doesn't point in that direction. I do understand where they are coming from. Uh, I found another theory on Reddit under Unresolved Mysteries that Russell Williams might be responsible. He was a military officer who raped and murdered women between 1987 and 2010. He was a graduate of Toronto University in 1987, and he often made trips to the Scarborough area. A lot of his victims look a lot like Elizabeth. Again, read it, take it with a grain of salt. And that was the murder of Elizabeth Bain. For someone that says she doesn't do cold cases, I certainly seem to be dipping into a few unsolved ones. I find cases without a confirmed resolution very frustrating, as I'm sure investigators and of course the families for sure do. And because I don't like opinion and pointing to people that haven't been convicted or arrested, there just isn't usually a lot to go on. But I definitely see the value in podcasts covering cases that have not been resolved, especially for the families that want some answers. And keeping their person's story out there creates public interest. And where there is interest, there is pressure to keep the file open and on someone's desk, nudging them to do something. So I might be highlighting more of them as we go. As always, thank you for listening, and if you haven't already, a rate or a positive review goes a long ways towards growing the show, as does your personal recommendations to friends and family. I'll be back next week with another case.